This episode contains extensive discussion of sexual assault and may be upsetting to some. If you need help, please call the National Hotline for Sexual Assault at 800-656-HOPE. Take care. Welcome back. Today I'll be speaking with one of my closest friends, Jane. Jane and I grew up together in the cult, attending the same congregation for the majority of our teen years. Jane is the younger sister of Matt and Angie from the previous two episodes, so some of this might sound a little familiar. We talk about what it was like growing up with witness and non-witness parents and the differences between the two households, what it was like for her to hit puberty and suddenly have a target on her back, being falsely accused of promiscuous behavior by older women in the congregation despite only being 12 years old. We cover the circumstances leading her to leave home at 17, start her life and career before the age of 20, coming to grips with the abuse she suffered as a child, and ultimately meeting her husband, who has been a very positive aspect of her life for the past 15 years now. I really enjoyed this interview as it helped me better understand my friend as well as helped her get some things out in the open. And I hope you enjoy it and get something out of it as well. So without further delay, here's Jane. Can you tell me about your earliest memory questioning the religion? I do remember having some questions uh, early on. We'll say like when I was 12 or 13 years old. My mom told me this story about when she was a single mom right after my dad had left her and she was on welfare and she didn't know how she was going to buy groceries. And then she told me about this box of cornflakes that she had. And she was so worried about it running out, but it like never ran out when she was in a such time of need. And she's like, that was Jehovah. That was Jehovah helping me. And I, I said back to her, I said, so you mean to tell me that women get raped and murdered and innocent citizens, civilians get killed in these foreign wars, tortured and beaten and 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 like you're so special that Jehovah kept your box of cornflakes full? <laughs> this is really funny. My mom has the exact same story, but it was a turkey. It was a turkey some witnesses brought over and she's like, the turkey just never ran out. And it was Jehovah. I know it. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's so funny. I didn't know. I never heard that story before. That's very interesting that both our moms would have just like that same kind of story or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, at least cornflakes are semi non-perishable. But that was like your mom had the anti like E. coli turkey or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I probably mentioned this in the beginning. Uh, we're friends. You are Matt and Angie's sister. So we've known each other for, shoot, how long now? You were 14. I was 13. And I'm 40 now. So that's 26 years. Yeah. Holy yeah. We're shit. closing in on 30 years of being friends. Oh, my God. Although we did have our ups and downs. We did. I ratted you out for smoking. <laughs> You totally did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. So I was, yeah, we went to, I think it was a, it was like a wing place, like a sports bar. 
Yeah. Yep, PW3s. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and you were dating this one worldly guy and I was already just kind of like, oh, like what the, what the, what's going on here? Like, huh? You just like whipped out a cigarette and started smoking it right in front of everything. <laughs> I must've been like what? 18. Yeah. I think it was around there. Yep. Yeah. 18, 19, something like that. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, I was still very much in and it was like shocking. I, I can't, I, I can't even think of anything to compare it to, but like, it was just, <laughs> whoa, I just left right then and there. And then the first call I made was to your mom. And I asked if you were disfellowshipped and she said, no, but she should be is what she told me. And then, Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then they gave me a number of one of the elders in the hall that you technically went to at the time. I think it was, that was where my publisher card was, where your publisher card was. And I called this elder and I think he had trouble recalling who you were. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. It, it didn't sound like he was going to make that, make tracking you down a high priority at all. And he's just like, well, thanks. Thanks for letting us know. And I'm like, at that point, I just felt like, okay, I'm done. I did what I was supposed to do. And that was it. Well, you know. So I'm sorry for that, but you know. <laughs> there were happier times in our friendship, though. You know, we were in a band together. And yep. You're one of the few people my parents would let me hang out with. Your mom and dad, just in case anybody hasn't heard it, the other two episodes, but your mom and dad met in the late 70s, shotgun wedding. Your older sister comes along, your older brother comes along, and then you come along. How long did you spend with both of your biological parents? How long did that last? I was I was three years old when they uh, formally separated. Okay. And the uh, divorce was final uh, about a year after that. And a couple weeks or months, I'm not quite sure. I was four years old and my mom got remarried. Okay, so not very long. No, no, not at all. Do you remember any of this? Like, do you remember your life before? Well, obviously you were still in the witnesses even when your birth parents yeah, were together. I was, I was born into the witnesses. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like your mom was definitely in. Do you remember like the first interactions with the stepfather? Oh, yes, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for as clear as a three-year-old memory can be, 37-year-old memory. <laughs> right. Um, I remember he would come over to our little house and he'd always be wearing a cowboy hat and he was real oh, friendly. So you have this weird Michigan cowboy showing yeah. up. <laughs> yep. This uh, Michigan cowboy showing up at our house. And apparently my mother was set up with him by somebody in the kingdom hall and they took to each other real fast. And I remember he would come over all the time. And um, looking back on it now, there were no chaperones for, you know, oh. people who were dating. But I believe my Scandal. mother, yeah, I believe my mother used us as the chaperones. I remember one night I got up after I was put to bed. Uh, all of us kids were put to bed. My mom and my stepfather, my future stepfather, were on the couch doing some heavy petting from what I recall. Oh. Ooh, I didn't know this either. That's and um, I mean, oh, I was just three years old, little tiny, you know, but I, my mom said, go back to bed. So I went back to bed years later. She told me 
yeah, yeah, we needed to get married. We were we were getting pretty close to sinning, and uh, we needed to get married. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic reason to marry somebody. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you have a father that you still see regularly. He had partial custody of you, correct? Um, it, or visitation. He had visitation, yeah. My yeah. mom had sole custody. Yeah. I mean, which he fought for years. Since you were going to see your dad, like, you had a sense that, like, being a witness is a very different lifestyle. Uh, yes, but it was normal and obviously the right thing to do in my mind. So my dad was the weirdo in from uh, my perspective. Okay. So you kind of took to it like your mom did. Like, it was, like, obviously it was all you've ever known and the majority yeah. of your time. But, you know, obviously, so... She was my female example, and uh -huh. obviously, you you know, when I was a good kid, and I respected my parents, and I wanted to do as I was bid, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was always a mental battle, and, like, Jehovah knows what you're thinking, and, like, so you would, you would be forced to say a prayer of forgiveness if you even thought something like, gosh, I know I'm in first grade, but that birthday cupcake looks delicious. And then you'd have to go and pray to Jehovah for forgiveness because you almost stumbled. It's like Big Brother times a thousand. It's like even in 1984, they couldn't like read your thoughts. No, but that that's literally what it is. It's like they were thought crimes. They, this was the original 1984 in real life, you know, yeah. Orwell's 1984. There were thought crimes, you know, within the witness organization. And yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the way the way that they had us manipulated to feel guilty or confess little stupid stuff was just it's incredible to me you know i mean there are psychological operations and i believe that's definitely one of them so when you were at your dad's did you ever like give into temptation for like holidays of course i knew it was bad but we would always go to my dad's house for two weeks um in uh, on christmas vacation that was part of the custody arrangement was that he would have us every Christmas vacation and we'd be there for two weeks. And of course he and my stepmom got us presents and we had other family members that would get us presents and we were instructed not to partake, you know, in the festivities, but if right. you do, that's between you and Jehovah. And of course, I'm a, I'm a little kid. I love getting presents. Who doesn't love getting presents, you know? Right. And um, this one time, we were getting picked up by my mom and my stepdad after Christmas break was over. We're getting picked up. And on the two hour ride home, two and a half hours, it was, it was absurdly long. I was bored as usual because, you know, there weren't like cell phones or iPads or anything. <laughs> no tablets right. you could do you no. know, back in the 80s and, and early 90s. And I whipped out this toy that I got for Christmas. It was this little mini Simon, you know, the little memory game where you press the button. Oh, it yeah, was just yeah. A it was a little mini one. It wasn't the big one. Right. But I was like, bro, I could play with this and not be bored in the car. So I'm playing <laughs> with it. And obviously it's after dark. You know, it gets really dark early in Michigan uh, right. around Christmas time. And they noticed, my my parents up front noticed what I was doing because they could see the little lights. Uh -huh. And my mom said, maybe it was my stepdad. I can't remember which one. I think it was my mom. She said, is that a Christmas present? And I just looked up like guilty and I was like, yeah. And my mom grabs it from me. And as we're going down the highway, she chucks it out the window. 
harsh. I knew I had messed up. I knew I was in the wrong because I never should have accepted that. That was like the coolest thing I ever had. Like my older brothers and sisters always had cool stuff. They get the better presents than me, but I finally had something that they didn't have. Right. And I got over it because I knew I was in the wrong and I prayed for forgiveness. <laughs> Jeez. For anybody else, that scenario just wouldn't have happened. Like, you know, it would have been like, is that a Christmas present? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just after being out of it for so long, it's weird to get back into that mentality. I mean, ripping a harmless toy out of a young child's hands and humiliating them and making them think that they are terrible for accepting this gift. I mean, that is some psychology on some other level. Like, like that that's just, that's kind of traumatizing to a little kid, you know? Yep. So did they start you off in public school or homeschool or, or what? I was started off in public schools, just our little hometown school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived at, we lived in a very small rural town where yep. sometimes kids would drive their tractors to high school <laughs> instead of their cars. <laughs> we would literally close down on, uh, we would close the schools down on November 15th because hunting season. That, that's when rifle deer season starts. Yep. And that was pretty much a regional holiday, you know, for us folks in rural Michigan. And oh, yeah. So we would, we'd shut the schools down and everybody go out hunting. And I didn't, obviously, but I would just be like, cool, I got the day off. Now, my, my stepfather was really into like the most manly recreational fishing and, and, and shooting you could do. Right. And he would always look down upon people that would use their rifles to kill deer. And he would always be like, real men use bow and arrow. <laughs> oh, God. When did you move to that small town? Like, how old were you? I was six years old and I was okay. in first grade. So I was... I started school when we briefly lived in Colorado. That's when I went to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And um, we moved shortly after first grade had started for me in Colorado. So I uh, was moved from Colorado back to Michigan. Okay. And um, yeah, that's I was six when I started going to elementary school there. Okay. Your stepdad, was was he an elder at this point? or? Um, you know, I'm real fuzzy on like the exact time he became an elder i think i was probably a preteen, maybe 10 or somewhere in that area i know that uh when we started attending our new congregation in michigan um he you know like everybody loved him you know and he was oh. very very uh shortly after we arrived there he was made into a ministerial servant and oh, wow. then he climbed the proverbial ranks and and it wasn't long after that that he was made a full-on elder So I was, I was pretty young. I would say, you know, 10 or so, maybe between 10 and 12, but I think it was closer to 10. Okay. How was your life at home? Um, on a surface level, it was all right, I guess. Like we always were fed. We had a decent little house. I mean, it it was a poor little ranch style home, but we had, we were just renting it, but we had like 40 acres that. Wow. that was associated with the rental like just you could go for these long walks in the woods behind our house dogs run free and and we kids because at that point in time i had two younger brothers that were born to my mom and stepdad mm-hmm. and you know we could walk and run free and the dogs could run around and, and we were always outside all of us except for my older sister yeah. um 
she wasn't kicked outside because I think she was always, you know, thought of as more responsible, less annoying one, you know, which comes with being the oldest, I'm sure. But also she got out of uh, getting kicked out to go play or getting kicked out to go do yard work because she would make baked goods. <laughs> she oh. would make cookies. And so she was always <laughs> exempt from the outside work. <laughs> uh, Anyways, oh. um, what I was going to say is that it was it was decent, you know, from the standpoint that I, I didn't really want for anything. You know, I mean, I obviously yeah. I had you know, shitty hand-me-downs for my sister or right. from Goodwill or whatever the local thrift store was, you know, but I didn't want for anything, but it was, um, it was not entirely happy because my stepdad had instituted kind of a regime of fear, like rule by fear. Mm-hmm. And he would carry out his threats. I mean, I, we were beaten with objects, belts, spoons, but like not to the point where it, it was beyond the point where they were getting our attention and scaring us. It it was it was child abuse, and actually that's documented by a physician that uh, a judge ordered us kids to go see, who examined us and determined yes, there is child abuse here because there were welts and marks on our body. Huh. Um, and even after that, the judge still sided with my mom. <laughs> wow. But um, no, like I remember getting um, just full on, full force, open hand slaps. Uh, I remember getting fist punches in the face. Um, Jeez. Yeah, it, it was not happy. And it was it was definitely uh, a rule by fear. And um I guess I just thought that was normal. I mean, like it, it's it's widely preached that you need to physically discipline your kids in the Bible, mm-hmm. and you know, within reason, there might be some validity to that. Um, but what we went through, the discipline we went through, was not to correct bad behavior. It was to get us in line. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. is this is the established order of things, and even if you have a thought crime, we can physically hurt you. And you know, there's yeah. that song in the the um, what's the the songbook? At least the one that was around when I was, you know, in the religion. There's that song yeah, the that brown said, one talks about their gifts from God. He says, "Use the rod," <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> and uh, my my mom and my stepdad definitely lived by that, even if it was quite literally a rod. Yeah. They don't really preach a whole lot of restraint, like, or balance in the witnesses. And it's like, I feel like sometimes they make maybe some token, well, you shouldn't go too far on that. But, you know, they were like very pro physical discipline, but never really talked about how much is too much and what what the point of being abusive is and all that kind of thing. And, And, you know, technically being a child abuser is something that is not, they don't technically allow, but there are lots of things they technically don't allow that do happen. And they just kind of turned a blind eye to it. It's like you were pointing out, there's no guidance. Like, so yes, they, they advocate for physical discipline and I, you know, I'm they sure, just like trust I said before, everybody to know what that means. There's arguments on both sides whether that's the correct thing to do, but there was no there was no guidance as far as yes, you can take this too far, and here's what that might look like, you right. know. And and no, there was no guidance like that. So you would have people like 
I don't know, probably more normalish parents in the hall would spank their kids or whatever. But like my mom and stepdad were so militant that they took it to another level. Yeah. Um, You know, and they could have benefited from that guidance, but it was almost like, I don't want to say they got some sick pleasure out of it, but like maybe it's like the pleasure that a dictator gets when he gets people to fall in line. I I don't know, but it definitely Mm. wasn't done out of love, in my opinion. It was done out of, you little bastard, get your ass over here. You defied me and I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Like so, maintaining discipline or whatever in it. And yeah. We can't put ourselves in their heads at the time, but it sure doesn't look like it was, you know, trying to correct you and guide you to, to be a good person or whatever. It's more, it just. Right. Right. You know, and, and like, I think that our speculation might have some validity to it because for some you know credence or weight because we are both now parents obviously your child is is quite young mine has entered into adulthood Mm -hmm. at this point don't get me started folks (laughs) you're not an adult when you're 19 believe me (laughs) i'm living proof of that sure doesn't yeah but my my point is is that you know with you and i both being parents like um neither of us have technically physically abused our children the way you know like no. what i went through and so it's Never. just it's just that's not the way to help somebody grow and become a good person which is the job of a parent you know right so. and yeah there there are some times where you either maybe you yell or because you're angry and it does take mental restraint and discipline to just like stop or you get angry at like things you shouldn't don't necessarily need to get angry about yeah you know and and i am not saying i am the perfect parent no Um, me neither i'm not far from i mean if if being the perfect parent means you don't beat your kids and leave marks all over them well then maybe i am the perfect parent but (laughs) no there there have definitely been situations where i could have handled so much better in a so much more appropriate manner when it came to my daughter but yeah i mean that's true of that's true of every parent i think I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but all sure. you can do is is look on that and be introspective and say, you know, I know that wasn't right. I'm not going to justify this to myself because I'm the boss and I'm the mom. You know, you look at it and you say, how do I make it so that when I'm in a situation similar to this where I'm angry, that I handle it more appropriately? Right. And that was just not the case for my mom and my stepdad they they never thought they were in the wrong for doing what they did oh no no and, they, just, um, they just point yeah. to that song or the scripture the <laughs> rod of discipline right and i know a lot of them will just say oh it, it says rod it's so clearly there is some sort of a physical implement implement there and right. <laughs> so you're growing up you're getting older i know a lot of female witnesses tend to start getting sort of like just monitored for shall we say slutty behavior sure we can call it that i mean not not calling you anything or anything but you know that's just in their minds i know you experienced some of that because i remember that one meeting where you actually you had like a a slit up the side of your dress and it wasn't a very like long one it wasn't like you weren't like Morticia Adams at the Kingdom Hall or anything like that. But I remember you had to go back to the bathroom and like sew it down one meeting. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing about me is that 
after I got out of my awkward child growth years and I started to go through puberty, I got quite pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was like what my mom and stepdad would remind me of and always talking about being, you know, marriage material. And I mean, like, I'm like 12 years old and they're talking to me about being marriage material. Oh God. <laughs> um, but they would almost kind of like parade me around when we would go, like when my stepfather was the visiting elder for a Sunday meeting. You know, and they would kind of like parade me around like, this is what we have to offer, you know. <laughs> I will take no Our, less than six goats. Right. Right. Um, so I didn't, what were we talking about? I'm so sorry. Oh, just like how a lot of witness girls go through this phase where everybody just kind of looks at them with suspicion. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, and being sexually active, and they start this as at a at a very inappropriately young age. I've noticed and heard. Oh well, I mean, they start a lot of stuff at a very inappropriately young age. I mean, it was always preached to me that you know women are subservient, and that the only thing that we could do in our lives that would make any difference is to find a good husband who had a good service vehicle. Now we're talking a sedan or a minivan. (laughs) And also full-time pioneer, you know, when you're married and that's the only thing you're good for. Oh man. Have you ever owned a two-door car? No, no, I haven't. Neither have I. And it's like, I feel like that should be a bucket list thing. (laughs) Well, I, my only child is now 19 years old, so <laughs> I can go ahead and get myself a coupe. <laughs> you definitely could. You don't, yeah, you don't need anything more. <laughs> oh, except for the fact that my dog is 130 pounds and now, no, that's not going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like I'm going to be a Subaru driver forever. <laughs> yeah, so you're like, you're a teenager now. We meet and like, that hall had a lot of kids our age in it. Yes. Yep. And I would even venture to say like an unusually high number of children the same age in it. Like you don't, you didn't see that. Like, cause I remember the other hall, it was like we had two congregations in this little town and we had one side, which is where the vibrant, you know, all of the younger families all the younger families were and then there was the other side which was all the old people and nobody wanted to go to those meetings i mean it smelled like mothballs and sulfur every time you went to those meetings <laughs> everybody had like one foot in the grave or <laughs> it was yeah it was boring af bro <laughs> oh yeah like there was just nobody to i mean and, and when you're, when you're a kid you know you don't you don't want to go to the meeting for the meeting you want to okay. go to the meeting because your friends are there and you're looking forward to after the meeting is over, getting to talk and hang out and, you know, basically yeah, until, your, no, until your parents tell you to it's time to go. But but that was that was, you know, part of the meetings is, you know, you, you get you get to have fellowship with people right. of like mind. And, you know, so. So, yeah, I mean, having the amount of kids, you know, within our I don't know, within like five to seven years of each other yeah uh, that did make it a little more interesting you know after before the song and after the ending song <laughs> i remember the first time i saw you um, yeah. 
there was I think it was a Thursday night meeting maybe maybe it was Sunday. I don't know but um, I don't remember either I remember being like to my friend we're standing there after the meeting and we're kind of looking at you we're across the hall but you know me and my my friend were standing there talking to each other we were best friends about about the same thing. and I was like we should go introduce ourselves <laughs> she's like yeah <laughs> There's a new boy. Oh my God. Maybe that's going to be my husband. <laughs> so I ran up to you. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be like, hi, I'm Jane. And this is my friend. And we just wanted to welcome you to our kingdom hall. <laughs> and you were like, okay. Hi. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I was like that. Because I wasn't used to people being that nice to me. The hall I came from, everybody had known me since like birth everybody knew me and there were kids my age there too but like we i didn't get along with most of them that well and um there were a couple kids that were actually they'd verbally bully me a lot and it was uh it was a pretty rough go at that hall in fact that the reason that we switched halls was because i was kind of on the verge of at that point of just saying fuck this shit I'm not going to be a Jehovah's witness anymore. Like that's, I was very close to that point. Not, not for any like theological reason, just that, you know, I was miserable. I was miserable at school because I was so weird because I was a witness and I didn't even really have that much of a refuge at the kingdom hall either because, you know, most of the kids there would either just make fun of me or they, because I wasn't into like, so that hall was very much like your hall or, or you know, your town. Like our, our towns were kind of like the bookends. Our, they were very similar where everybody was into like hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And I was not into that stuff. And that kind of sequestered me from other people there. Like I wasn't in, like all, most of the other kids were just like into hunting and being outside and and that was not me. And so like, we just didn't have a lot of common my mom in desperation to keep me in the quote unquote truth started taking me to your hall because there were so many, I don't know what, I don't know how she found out about it. I don't know if she was just like decided to visit another hall that day, or if it was like the most convenient to do something there or something, but yeah, so we went to the we went to your hall and I went there for the first time. I think my mom went first or oh, I think you know what? You know what it was? A couple people from my hall, like a couple of families from my hall ended up moving to to the town that your that your congregation was in and started going to that. And I think word got back to her that like, hey, this congregation isn't so clicky like like ours like our original one was because yeah you have to remember though that for as much of a small rural town as i grew up in the one you came from was worse than mine <laughs> yeah it, it was a, even it was a smaller more backwards yeah. yeah yeah definitely so that was like my background and then i go to this new hall and people are actually coming up to me to introduce themselves to me and be excited to meet me and i think what you saw as being standoffish was just like my brain like freezing like like a program on a computer just like uh 
Uh, does not I compute. I was not. I don't know how to handle this situation. I've never been in this situation before. People are being nice to me. What do I do? What do I say? How do I move my face? You know, that kind of thing. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. you know, I think the funniest thing that I've learned uh, uh, since I've listened to my brother and sister's interviews, was the funniest thing that I've learned is that my older brother, who is gay, had the exact same notion. <laughs> He's like, ooh, a boy. <laughs> <laughs> You were getting it from all sides, Brian. I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's man. Hilarious. Yeah. Although, let it be known to everybody, you and I never had a romantic relationship. We've always just been nope. platonic. God bless us. And that's probably still why we're friends almost 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. Like, you dated when you were a teenager, right? So, like, you, I'm sure you experienced, like, the whole everybody getting up in your business all the time. Well, see, here's the thing. I had... Before I was 18, I had like two, maybe three boyfriends, all witnesses, of course. Yeah. And um, like there was nothing terrible happening in any of these circumstances. And they weren't serious relationships. I was just a bored homeschooled teenager. And like the only thing I had to think about was like sex and marriage because that was the only thing that was important. So, you know, according to my mom and stepdad. Yeah. And, And I was just... And baked I didn't goods. Care. I didn't care who it was. I just wanted to have somebody I could call a boyfriend. So even though I didn't really date or have a serious boyfriend, people had been up in my business since, like I said, since I started puberty. Like I, 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 I yeah. became really pretty really fast. Um, you mentioned that dress that I was wearing at the Kingdom Hall. Um, mm-hmm. There was, you know, and, and there was nothing that I put on my body that was not sanctioned by my mom or approved by my stepdad. Yeah. So if, if I walked out of the house, uh, I I assumed I was good. I was fine. And right. then, so, yeah, I had this dress and there was a, a slit in it. And it, I think it came up to like maybe an inch beyond my knee. Yeah, it was like really, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, like it I was said, not, it, it was not a Morticia Adams dress. <laughs> it was not scandalous in the least bit. No. But because I was a pretty girl, somebody complained about it and... I, my mom always carried this little sewing kit with her, which is, you know, not a bad idea to be honest, but, um, and she, she like made me go down into the bathroom and sew up my slit. So it was below the knee. And of course, like, I'm not a professional seamstress. So I just looked like an idiot after that. (laughs) But then the next time that happened, there was another incident with a slit and it was a black dress. It, It had like, it came up to my collarbones. It was not low cut. It was like three quarter length sleeves, um, very modest, but it had a slit right up to the knee. And of course, when you sit down, you know, your clothing comes up just a bit. And um, we're sitting in the front row, which on a Thursday night meeting, actually, anytime we went to the Kingdom Hall, my stepfather made us all sit in the very front row. And there was another sister that liked to sit up right around the same area within the first two rows off to the side of course uh-huh. you couldn't you couldn't be as important as my family and right. sit with anyway um she wrote a letter during the meeting and dropped it in the contribution box oh geez and when i got home um you know it's after 10 like it always is after the thursday night and trying to go to bed and I get called into my mom and stepdad's bedroom and my stepdad whips out this letter and it was all about how brother 
so-and-so's daughter is trying to stumble all the brothers and oh, you know Lord. she's you know how how can she wear this kind of attire you know with a slit that goes all the way up to her crotch and like <laughs> it was all like hyperbole and you yeah. know the terrible thing is that there was nothing wrong with the dress there was nothing inappropriate about that dress other than right. it looked really fucking good on me you know mm. I, I had nice little curves and, and it, it wasn't like skin tight but it was kind of form-fitting like a dress should be and I looked yeah. really good in it and I am convinced that is the only reason why she was freaking out. Like, if it was on any other girl in, in, in the Kingdom Hall, she wouldn't have batted an eye or even noticed it. But yeah. because I was brother so-and-so's daughter, and, you know, I was pretty, and and I don't know. I mean, You're supposed it's to be really, an example. It's, it's a very catty environment. Um, yeah, and yeah your brother compared that. them to piranhas. Oh yes, I mean I experienced that from uh, from the time that my sister, my oldest sister, started going through puberty. You know, mm-hmm. like she she was very pretty too, um, much earlier developer than I was, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, yeah. So like I, my best friend, the one that I mentioned when you know we we saw you for the first time at the Kingdom Hall, uh, she had several older sisters, and. Yeah they would say the meanest things about me to her. Really? Oh, yeah, just like catty stuff. Like, you know, like... Did they even know you? Mean to women. Of course they knew me. I, I was over I mean, at did, their house all the time. I know, but did they like know you know you or did they just kind of like were in the same room as you and just made a bunch of like... Uh, we went to the same Kingdom Hall since I was six. Um, okay, spent, so... I spent a ton of time at their house. And yeah. I, I mean, I feel like they knew me better than just, you know, being a passive, you know, catty bitch. Okay. But they, they, it was like personal. And so I feel like they were like, they were threatened by me somehow. And it was just weird. It, it was just demoralizing because I was honestly just a happy little kid that liked to have fun and I didn't cause trouble or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And just if people would always be saying these bad things about me and, I don't know. I, I kind of got used to it and just kind of rolled my eyes and always got, you know, anytime somebody would complain about me, obviously it was always, it would always come down on my shoulders and I'd have to explain myself. And, right. And it was never, none of the adults in the room were like, Hey, leave this fucking kid alone. Yeah. You know, I was just a sex pot, you know, <laughs> like when I was 12 and 13. No, I wasn't, you know, and, and I'm not being highfalutin or anything. I'm just saying, I mean, my looks have far passed, you know, since then, <laughs> but it, it was, it's really, it's all about appearances. You know, how, how does everything look? And it's also superficial that you take somebody and I had, I had a lot to offer. I was very creative and I was very bubbly and, oh, yeah. you know, you played an I, instrument. I played, yeah. I played a couple instruments. I could sing, yeah. you, you know, sing I, really I, well. I was really smart. And like nobody took any note of any of those characteristics. It was all just because I was attractive and I was going to stumble the brothers. And, you know, it, it's just yeah. there's really no unbalanced. And there's no thought to like, well, maybe it's the if the brothers are being stumbled by this 12 year old girl wearing a fairly modest dress, you know, maybe that's their problem. Like maybe they shouldn't be stumbled so easy, but it was always like very. It was an environment of just like kowtowing to the easily the most easily offended person in the congregation. Pretty like, much. 
yeah so like it was like it was like the pre it was like the the uh precursor to cancel culture <laughs> yeah you were can't i was constantly your canceled. slit goes I above the knee when you sit down you're canceled exactly <laughs> get on jw twitter right now oh man right. oh can you imagine if we had twitter back then oh Oh, oh my goodness! Uh, you know, I, I let's just take a moment to say I am thankful we don't have, we didn't have any social media or cameras that gave us instant pictures. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> so, was there a lot of pressure to get baptized? I know you got baptized fairly young. Uh, there was a ton of pressure to get baptized. Um, I was, you know, the youngest of three children before you know my half brothers came along. Yeah. You no, know, and obviously I. I had to do everything I could to keep up with my older brothers and sisters or older brothers and sister. Um, yeah. So I remember my sister got baptized and don't quote me. I think she was 14. Okay. Maybe, maybe 13. I don't know. And then I believe my brother got baptized and here I am real young and you know, this is the only world I knew. And that was how you got clout and, and respect as if you were baptized and so I'm 11 years old and I started the process when I was 10. Oh my God. I made my mom and my stepdad just burst with joy when I said, I want to get baptized. And I remember um, I visited my dad. It was like our weekend to go visit him that mm-hmm. weekend. And I said, dad, I have to tell you something. I said, I'm going to get baptized. And he just like closed his eyes and he was like, okay, I wish you wouldn't. And I was like, why? Can you even tell me why? You know, and I was, you know, when it came to matters of religion, nobody knew anything except for Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. Nobody knew. They just, they were stupid. Yeah. And so I was not respectful when I said that. I said, can you tell me why? Why don't you want me to get baptized? And he paused for a minute and he goes, all right, I'll tell you why. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but he just talked about how it's not the right thing to do. And that was the gist of his message. And I just remember thinking like, well, Satan tries to stop you from all sorts of angles, even if it's from your own dad, you know, (laughs) it only like bolstered me to, to want to continue with this decision, which I had no idea, you know, what the effects were going to be. I did it because it was cool. I wanted to fit in and it was cool. And I also wanted the status symbol being like, yeah, well, um, I'm the only one of my friends that's baptized. And you're like, yeah, you're 11. (laughs) So you moved out pretty young. Uh, yeah. How old were you? I was 17 technically when I moved out. Um, I had finished my homeschooling. My graduation party was imminently coming up. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a big fun party. Maybe not as fun as my older sisters, yeah. but it was going to be a big fun party. And I was really excited that I got to be like the center of attention, you know, because I could always right. go to like weddings and other people's graduation parties. But yeah. I was never I, I don't know. I just I wanted to feel special and I was really excited about my graduation party. Yeah. Graduation parties are really the only thing witnesses have that's similar to a birthday. Yeah, pretty much. It's yeah. kind of it kind of is like a birthday party, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, essentially, you know, it's like a coming of age type of a thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get this party that's all about you. Like, there's pictures of you up. 
all through the years and people are driving hours and hours to come yeah it's like you don't get any birthdays but at least you get at least you get this big old party that's all for you it doesn't have to be a big old party but you know it's generally like you know to see the effort that a lot of parents put to their kids birthday parties like not every single one but you know more than just one in their entire life but anyway yeah sorry you're yeah. Your uh, your graduation party. You're looking forward to this. It's coming up. It's your sister's was like awesome. It was it was the biggest party like the witnesses have ever known. <laughs> it lasted a whole weekend. <laughs> it really was because it it's it is by far the biggest party and the best time I've ever had as a witness. Oh yeah, I mean that was that was a blast. I mean we had that little house and yep. we had those forty acres and. There were so many. There were I. I would venture to say a hundred, maybe more people, and we had people camping out in our backyard. My mom ordered yep. an outhouse or two, mm-hmm. and like at the end of the first day, like you know, I I was staying up and having fun with my friends and stuff because there was like literally no adult supervision because the adults were having just as much fun as we were. Right. And um, <laughs> you know, eventually it, it's like late into the night. I don't even know what time it was, but very late for me. You know, maybe it was like midnight or something. Yeah. And I went to go lay down in my bed and there was somebody in my bed. I was like, oh, okay. I don't know who that is, but uh, I'll go to the couch. Nope. There were a couple people on the couch. So I was like, well, dang. Um, We had some furniture and stuff downstairs. I was like, well, maybe I could go to sleep down there, you know, in our little TV room. So I go down to our dank little basement. It wasn't little. It was actually quite a big basement, but it was dank. And not in the good way. And um, I went into the little TV room and there were a bunch of people sleeping in there. And so, like, the only place I could find to sleep that night was on the pool table that was in the basement. <laughs> the used, ratty, beat-up pool table that I think we got for free or something. And so I slept on the pool table that night. Oh, man. <laughs> it was just people everywhere, inside, outside. Oh, man. It was, it was one hell of a party, I'll tell you that. Yes, it was. <laughs> Yes, it was. It felt like almost more fun than a witness is, should be allowed to have. You know, like it was almost it was like, but not I don't think anything scandalous happened, but I think it was just like right at that borderline. It's like, OK, one toe past this one, one little bit more fun than this. And then there's a problem. But like it was like right up to that freaking line. All right, Brian, don't be naive just because you didn't get laid that night doesn't mean other people didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I suppose there were some tents, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> not a whole lot of supervision. And yeah, anyways. But it, I it feel was, like uh, if something happened, it would have gotten out and like it would have been common knowledge or something. Yeah, well, not everybody told on themselves like my sister used to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The right, all the right people got in trouble. You know, the people knew how to keep their mouths shut. So I'm sure like you were hoping for like something kind of similar. Yeah. Well, I knew it wasn't going to be on uh, as grand of a scale as my sister's was. I mean, obviously you go big for your first child. By the time you get to the third child, you're like, "Mm, here's a community center. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you didn't, you weren't, you were living in a different house too. Like you didn't have those 40 acres anymore. And all that stuff well, right right but but still they they wouldn't have gone all out like that because you know that's like i said you do that for your oldest kid and yeah and and you know the luster's gone you're just like god damn it we have two more of these to go after her 
<laughs> so like I said, here's I a community that. center you can have for four hours. And uh, that was about all I was going to get. But I was super excited. You know what I mean? Well, I yeah, so- it's still fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get some money and oh, yeah. be the center of attention. And, you know, it was exciting. And and I had completed my schoolwork. And when I say completed my schoolwork, I want everybody to know that I'm using finger quotation marks. Yeah, your schoolwork is, was just like, because you were you were homeschooled at this point. Uh, yeah, I, my mom pulled me out of public schools at the end of seventh grade. Hmm. And not that this mattered, but it was with my consent because like all the cool kids were getting homeschooled, you know, oh, in, the, right. in the, you know, early to mid nineties. And like all my friends did it and they were able to go out and service and they were able to, you know, like do more things and have more fun. And that was my social circle. Like, yeah, I, I had some friends at public school, but nobody I was ever allowed to talk on the phone with or hang out with or anything like that. Right. So, I mean, I obviously wanted to do what my real friends were doing, you know, mm-hmm. with no clue of the consequence of that. And so, you know, my mom said to me at the end of seventh grade, she says, well, let's, let's homeschool you. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and nice. so... Um, she finds this homeschool for me based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hmm. And, you know, she bought a curriculum for me to use. So I had all the workbooks and she also gave me all the teacher's books. So, you know, I would do my due diligence and, you know, fill in what I could fill in and be like, yeah, I know this. I know this. But anything that stumped me, I mean, I had no guidance. I had no I couldn't ask questions to anybody. I mean, I could ask my mom. She was pretty good with English. Yeah. But, you know, like the other subjects that are equally important, like math and science, like, eh, I just, you know, eh, get out the teacher's book, fill it in, make it look like it worked. Right. So my education was far from ideal. And so, you know, I completed it when I was 16 years old. You were learning how to Google before Google was a, a, was a thing. <laughs> Analog Googling. Analog Google. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there was really no emphasis or any importance put on my education. I was nothing more than a breeder cow for my very prominent elder father and his wife that got her shits and giggles out of being the wife of a very prominent elder, mm. you know as it was perceived so like there was no invest you know nobody invested in me or my future or taught me you know like hey you've got these really cool characteristics let's see if we can expand upon them and you know everything was about sex everything was hyper sexualized for me from the time i was very young mm-hmm. um i was i didn't understand quite but i knew i knew the worst thing you could possibly do in your life is have sex outside of marriage Hmm. like you literally you could go commit like a heinous crime and we see examples of them all the time you could you could do one of these very violent heinous crimes and the jehovah's witnesses would still embrace you and try to help you but if you had sex outside of marriage well yeah oh you, you were ostracized you were talked about and gossiped about Everybody looked at you when you came in the kingdom hall. I remember because I remember I, I was privy to why people were disfellowshipped all the time because my stepfather was a very prominent elder. And I remember looking at them like, what a freak, you know, I Wait, mean, like, so he uh, elders aren't supposed to share that information with anybody. Oh, no, but I mean, 
even even the most holy of holiest of us loved to gossip including yeah. the elders yeah. and sometimes he would say it like on the dl to my mom and he'd be like you yeah, well we just need to make sure we keep our kids away from this because i know that this happened and then my mom had a big fucking mouth and she would always tell us all what happened and, yeah. and of course we were all like social butterflies and you know gossip is like the best way to get attention and, and you know what i mean get things oh, going yeah. and and so like we would all look look upon these people that had sexual indiscretions and it was everybody's business and and just it was so unbalanced like i see the benefits to celibacy before you're in a committed relationship where you want it to go further i I totally do but having sex before marriage is far from the worst thing you can do in your life and nor should you be treated like a freak because you did what goddamn everybody else does in their life yeah i mean you you find me seven people that we knew whether they were adults or growing up with us that were virgins when they were married i would struggle to find seven people five people even yeah you know so it's like it, it really just like that was always the focus the circumstances surrounding you leaving home do you want to talk about that I certainly can, but I think it's important for people to understand uh, what led up for a decade and a half before I left my home. Sure. Um, my story is actually quite dark, uh, especially in comparison to my older brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty difficult to talk about. I understand. My stepfather was not just this bloviating social climbing you know tough guy who had a really prominent position in the kingdom hall like he was a bad man you know and i've referenced the way that he abused us actually i mean i I told you about the 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 judge who ordered a doctor to examine us for you know child abuse or physical abuse and Mm -hmm. you know they found evidence and my dad wasn't able to get custody of us, but he was able to get a restraining order that said my stepfather was not allowed to physically discipline us in any way. He couldn't lay a hand on us. Hmm. Um, that was only effective so far as my older brother goes. Hmm. My older brother was defiant and pretty much fearless. And anytime my stepdad would get angry with him to the point where you knew physical abuse was coming, my brother would be like, you can't touch me. You can't touch me. Like literally just like that. Wow. You know, and, and (laughs) that would piss him off. And so my mom would be deployed with a weapon or whatever she could grab from the Uh kitchen or whatever. (laughs) And so he'd still get beat, but my stepfather couldn't do it. And I, I can only assume that like in his mind, that was a win. Now, I, I was born very much a people pleaser. I was very sweet. You know, when I got into trouble and stuff, I do naughty mm-hmm. things. But that restraining order didn't protect me from my stepdad. Mm-hmm. My older sister didn't really do anything that warranted physical discipline. But, you know, I was a little kid, naughty. And, and like, he knew that he could do anything he wanted to me. And get away with it. He knew I wouldn't tell. Hmm. Because I was a scared little girl. 
And the reason he knew that is because when I was six years old, he started sexually abusing me, uh, very grotesquely. Um, I didn't say anything. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't understand what was happening to me. Um, I just remember being a little kid and I've always been an early riser. I was even born at like five in the morning or something like that, but I've always yeah. been an early riser. And, you know, I'd get up and everybody would still be sleeping like on the weekends or whatever. And so I, I do what lots of little kids do. And I would go and get in bed with my mom and my stepdad, who was basically my dad. He always insisted he was our dad from the very beginning wow. that he said, I, my mom, he made us call him dad. And we would, we would get clapped back at if we accidentally called him by his first name, which we were accustomed to doing when he was dating my mother. Yeah. Um, sometimes we would get physically punished for not remembering to call him dad. Wow. And so I'd go and get in bed with my mom, dad, because that's what little kids do. And my mom was really into sleeping in when she was able to. And so, you know, I was like, all right, whatever. But my stepdad was not so much into sleeping as he was with physical contact. Mm. He'd pretend he was sleeping. Looking back on this, I I, I know what was going yeah. on now <laughs> as yeah. an adult. Um, but I just, I felt like I was being loved and giving a, given attention, you know? And so I didn't yeah. say anything. Right. And so I would go and keep getting in bed with them and things just progressed and, you know, got progressively more intense. And um, I remember one time I, I was still pretty young. I don't know, maybe eight. And I remember I was like, I, I, yeah, I don't like this. So I stopped going to get into bed with them. And my mom said to me, she's like, you didn't come cuddle with your father this morning. That hurt his feelings. And I was like, oh. So then that was a signal to me that I was supposed to continue doing that. Hmm. And I just. Was your mom aware of this? <laughs> the abuse went on for six years. I was 12 when it fully ended. Hmm. Um, the physical abuse. Uh, there were several other types of abuse that continued to happen after that. But the, the physical sexual abuse stopped when I was 12. Hmm. Um, and. My mother was always in the same bed while it was happening. Hmm. Um, so either my mother is the dumbest alive or she was complicit. So I'm going to go ahead and go with the latter because I know my mom wasn't dumb. Yeah. She wasn't that clueless. Right. But it just must have been something that she just chose not to address or think about because it would really put a rift in her perfect marriage to her perfect elder husband and her status and, you know, and protecting her child at that level. I mean, like, was it really worth it? Do I really want to be divorced again? And, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm, I'm speculating what her thoughts were, but there was no yeah. way. I have a daughter, a very beautiful daughter. And um, all I know is, is that if I even suspect it, forget laying in bed with somebody who is sexually abusing my daughter. If I even suspect it, I would 
kick ass and then ask questions later. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I, I can't even begin to justify how this woman didn't react. And you know that that hurts me. I mean, I'm over it, but it's very, it's, it's very hurtful because like looking at my daughter, I would die literally in the most horrific way before I let anybody lay a finger on her in an inappropriate way. Of course. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's not even, it's not even up for debate. And so I just, I have this disconnect where I just don't understand how she let it happen. Yeah. So like, I don't know if she's like, maybe just didn't turn, didn't turn over. Yeah. Didn't turn like, didn't want to, wanted to have plausible deniability, maybe something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you do justify that in your head as a mother, but somehow my mother, it's not a justification of, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, but like maybe, I don't know if she was, I can't, you know, we can't be in her head. And no, no, we can't. But, but I certainly, after being a mother, can judge. Sure, absolutely. I know that must have been hard for you to talk about. Oh, but it doesn't end there. Okay. Um, he would get more. He would get more um, obvious about it in certain circumstances. Um, there was one time he always wanted me to sit on his lap. And he always insisted, ever since he married my mother, that we kiss on the lips. We kiss on the lips. No kisses on the cheek. Creepy. That's not a real kiss, he told me. Weird. And one time he was tying flies because he was he loved to go fly fishing. And he wanted me to sit on his lap again under the guise of, let me teach you how to tie a fly. Right. Which happened frequently. And and then he was like, give me a kiss. And so I did what I was supposed to do. But he, he made it into a... Uh, it was not a good kiss. It was very, very inappropriate. Nothing fatherly about that. It was something that a Jehovah's Witness should only do with their wife. Uh, it is something that no human should ever do with a child. Unbelievable. And I was like, oh. Uh, and I was like really uncomfortable. And so I just got up and went away. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing about that story is when I was 25, um, I finally finally admitted this to my brother and sister the first time I had ever mentioned it before Mm. sitting around a bonfire drinking with my brother and sister older brother and sister there were we were all living in different states or whatever at the time and we had gotten together and we were drunk and one thing led to another my stepfather had been in a terrible terrible accident that left him um disabled like paralyzed in certain ways and um I won't get into the, you know, the details of that. It was, he was surfing or something like that and went under with a wave. And we were talking about how the angels must have saved him from that situation because somebody dragged him out and gave him CPR, even though he had to spend months in the hospital uh, because he broke his neck or something. Like Mm. everybody's story was that it was the angels that saved your stepdad. It was that had to be angels. We don't know who they were. And I remember sitting around that bonfire discussing that very topic. And I said, yeah, they might've been angels, but I don't think he deserved it. And, you know, I drunkenly start crying a little bit. And, and I told them what had happened to me. And my my older sister, she goes, yeah, I think I believe you. Because she goes, one time he asked me for a kiss. And I went to give him a kiss. 
and he slipped his tongue down my in my mouth and I was like what and I got really upset and I slapped him and my mom was mad at me and she was like you hurt your father's feelings it was like virtually the exact same story that I just told you and her and I had never discussed this before wow how old was your sister at the time well if I was 25 that would have made her somewhere no I mean when when the kiss happened oh I you know I don't know Okay. I, I, I don't know for sure. Um, but I was the youngest. I knew the hierarchy of the family. I was scared of him, you know, which I hid under the guise of respect because that's what you're supposed to do as sure. a Joho child. And, um, you know, he couldn't get away with shit with my oldest sister. He couldn't get away with shit with my older brother. But he knew, he knew that I was young and impressionable and always was a people pleaser. And, and, and that's what predators do. They find the weakest one, you know, and they groom them and, and, and the most, the most vulnerable one. Yeah. The most vulnerable. Yeah. And, um, it, it, honestly, looking back on it, it is a textbook case of pedophile predator behavior. Mm -hmm. And, um, so this went on and it was always weird. You know, the older I got, the weirder it got, but I just, you know, didn't really address it in my head. And, you know, when I started getting pretty, like around 11 mm-hmm. and going through puberty, you know, it lessened a little bit, but he was always, you know, like touching me in front of people. Like, like he'd have his arm around me or he'd put around the, you know, like, like my rib cage and he'd like brush my breast with his fingers. And it was like blatantly in front of people. And, you know, like, I don't think a lot of people noticed, but I do think that some people took notice. I had girlfriends that refused to come over to my house and I didn't quite understand why, but, you know, talking to them later as adults, they were like, your stepdad was just creepy as fuck, man. I couldn't do it. (laughs) He would always, he would always make me like, he would come home from work. He was a carpenter, you know, big, you know, very physical job. And he'd come home from work and he'd take off his socks and his shirt and his undershirt. And he'd lay down on the living room floor and, he would make me straddle him and give him a massage, like almost every night. He'd be like, don't worry, I'll give you one too. Uh, not better. He would give me a massage. I mean, and this was all in the living room, you know, in full view of the family. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't like necessarily like... Yeah, I'm, I'm... It, it was perverted nonetheless, you know. And um, it stopped when I was 12 and I looking back now I think it was because I was very close to starting my period oh and so well you know yeah. I guess that's that was his threshold I, I, I honestly don't know I just know that's really when it stopped but he never stopped putting his arm around me and touching me and like when we were in the presence of any kind of men especially younger men he let it physically be known that I belonged to him always wow. like district conventions circuit assemblies and and like he would he would have like you were his wife and not your mom i don't know what the psychology was but i know he was very very possessive of me and in a physical and sexual way 
And so like, he, he had this overreaction, like, like illogical overreaction. Anytime I had a boyfriend. Um, so my first boyfriend, I think I was 14 and I went to my dad's house for visitation because, you know, my dad never, ever gave up on us. He faithfully came and picked us up every right. other weekend. You know, and at this point in time, I think my, my brother and sister were already out of the house and they were, you know, living their own lives. But he came and picked me up and I would still go to the Kingdom Hall, you know, and that was in his town. And it was a pretty big town. And yeah. so there was a lot going on there. And, you know, I met people and forged relationships. And I met this one kid and we we held hands or something like that. And I told on myself or I'm I'm not really sure how it happened, but that was like my first judicial committee. (laughs) Holding hands. Yes. I can, I can assure you it was nothing more than brief physical contact without sexual body parts. I was 14. I was a very good girl. You know, I wanted boyfriends and stuff, but I was definitely not like, on the prowl or anything like that, you know. I just, I just wanted the excitement, physical contact, and yeah. yeah. So I had my first physical meeting, and you know they didn't reprove me or discipline me, but I was given a very stern warning about. You know, for holding hands, it's like, gosh, there's like just nothing re- remotely discipline worthy there. But there, you you were still hauled into a judicial meeting. Yeah, and so. The second time I had a different boyfriend and I believe I was 15 or 16 and this, this kid was like 19 or 20. So yeah, that was definitely inappropriate. Yeah. A little. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, that's just what Joe Ho's do. They like them young. Right. And, um, he was part of the kingdom hall that I would go to when I would visit my dad Mm -hmm. and he and my older brother were great friends and he liked me Mm. and I was like, hey, this guy likes me. He has a car. Oh, and, boy. And he has a job. And, and yeah. And so I was like, wow. okay, yeah, let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. And, you know, honestly, I, there was nothing there. I had no feelings for him. He was not particularly attractive or popular. I was just, like, excited because an older boy wanted to date me. And so. Yeah, you know, like we the idea you know, of it more than it actually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I like the idea of it. And so this one time. um, my brother and I were over at my dad's house and um, we were going to go out and service, but we knew that that was not actually the plan because this older guy that I was dating wanted us to go show up at the meeting and then form a service group. And then we would go out and service just the three of us, me and my brother and this guy who was sure. not commonly known as my boyfriend. And so we ended up pulling that off and my brother gets in the front seat yeah. in the driver's yeah. seat and my boyfriend gets in the back seat with me and I was like what are we doing and they're like I'm just gonna drive around and so <laughs> my older brother was just stoked because this is in the late 90s or you know mid to late 90s and and yeah. my boyfriend had an SUV oh no oh boy the coolest freaking thing because like you didn't know anybody with an SUV and like right. that was like the cool dude thing to have and And my brother didn't care about this guy liking me. He just wanted to drive his truck. (laughs) (laughs) And so me and um, this dude are in the back seat and we're making out. Yeah. And um, 
nothing happened. Nothing bad. We were making out. He may have brushed my breast. You know, oops, didn't mean to. Right. But um, nothing happened. But they found out about that. I can't remember how, but that was my second judiciary committee. And in that committee, um, it was probably one of the worst experiences that I can remember because they knew I was making out with a boy mm-hmm. and the presiding overseer, he wanted to know, well, what did you do? And I told him we kissed and we held hands and he's like, did he have an erection? And I said, what's that? And he says, well, oh boy, oh no. when a man is sexually aroused, he took his hand and he made motions like he was mimicking what a penis looks like. Oh, he says geez. his penis goes from looking like this to looking like this. And he raised it and pointed it up slowly. And I was like, I, mean, I don't know. I, they, I they knew you were fully oh. dressed at this point. <laughs> like, how were you supposed to know? It's not like I was like, you know, reaching my hands down there. I was a good girl. I mean, not, yeah. not that good. I faked going out in service so I could make out. <laughs> right. I mean. But no, like, I nothing. I, I had, to this day, I have no idea. I'm going to go ahead and guess he probably did. But um, yeah. I didn't know. And and they were asking me all these questions about what happened. Yeah. And like, I remember, you know, being really humiliated and ashamed. And I looked up at one point and like everybody was just staring at me with like with their mouths agape. And I, I kind of compare it to that scene in the movie Titanic where the old version of Rose is telling that story about how she banged Leonardo DiCaprio and that at the back of that old car. Yeah. And then when they cut back to the present time, everybody's just looking at her, just captivated with her mouths half open. <laughs> that, that was like exactly what that was like to me. Except these were another- like these were like weirdo old men doing that about a young un, a young girl make just making out and that's it like yeah and 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 the weird part is that my stepdad was always part of my judiciary or judicial committees of course I, you know which i think there might be some ethics violations there but we're long past ethics violations oh, this is not a not, not a generally ethical organization we're dealing with eh, especially not in my case no so anyways i i got in trouble for that Oh, no, I didn't tell you the worst part of the whole meeting. When, when I looked up and everybody was looking at me, yeah. like with rapt attention, one of the brothers reached down and adjusted his crotch. Oh, God. And I just remember being like, okay, you shouldn't really itch your balls in front of chicks. you know. But then you know, when I got older, it dawned on me. No, he was actually quite happy to be a part of that conversation. Oh, Lord. Uh, it was really fucked up really fucked up and then the third time i had a different boyfriend and i was 16 17 and this was the one this was the one very handsome part of a really rich prominent family or at least for my perception really rich yeah (laughs) um and you know i just thrilled to be with this guy and he visited, he was, he's part of the same big city that my dad lives in where there's multiple congregations and he would come and visit the kingdom hall that I would go to when I was visiting my dad. And one day after a Sunday meeting, a bunch of us kids, including he and I, and my older brother and sister, maybe my sister wasn't there. I, I'm not sure, but yeah. we all went to Applebee's after the meeting. Ooh. 
I mean, that's a fun thing to do with a group of kids. Go and get oh, some, yeah. you know, cheap American fare. And <laughs> yep. It's a special fun thing. Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend and I were sitting together or sitting next to each other under this big booth table that was seating like, I don't know, 12 of us. And he reached his hand over and we held hands. Okay. And somebody noticed that our hands were under the table. And it got back to my stepdad and my mom. And I returned back to their house and they're like, what were you doing with this boy? And I said, well, we sat next to each other and we held hands. And my stepdad just lost his mind. And he was like, from now on. And I was 17 at this point. He's like, from now on, you will not leave your room except for to go to the bathroom and go to the meetings. You can work once a week. And if you ever use our phone, I don't care if it's long distance or within the area, you will give me $20 per phone call. Jeez. And I was like, all right, I'm still a good kid at this point. You know what I mean? But I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing this. I am 17 years old, legally in the state of Michigan. I can move out and they can't do shit about it. And I had an older brother and sister who were living in an apartment together, you know, downtown, the big city. And I took out my wallet. I handed him 20 bucks and I made a phone call. And I got picked up that night and I never went back. I just lived with my brother and my sister in their little tiny downtown apartment. They didn't try to stop the phone call or anything or? No, because I paid my 20 bucks. (laughs) But they didn't realize that I was, I was just like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I can, I can still live my life and, you know, and and, and I can pay 20 bucks per phone call and have my freedom. So that's exactly what I did. Just such a um, disproportionate response to that. Like they didn't think I was serious. They, um, after a few days, they called the cops and the cops were like, yeah, yeah, there ain't shit you guys can do. So then they went to the DMV and they canceled my driver's license because I was still technically under 18 and parents can revoke your license at their request. Oh, geez. I didn't know that. And then my mother, well, I'll get to that later, but, um, yeah, they, they, they tried everything to handicap me when they realized I was serious and I wasn't coming back. Wow. And it was just a shit show, but I was liberated. I was liberated for the first time in my entire life. And I don't know how to handle it. I didn't have any guidance. You know, my sister right. was out having fun, doing what she's doing, you know, getting disfellowshipped, reinstated, approved, <laughs> disfellowshipped. Who knows what she, you know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it was all over the fun place, times but, you know, getting to fellowship. <laughs> and, and, you know, she was a young person herself trying to figure out, you know, with no guidance. Oh, either. Of, course. of but, course. You know, I had I had no guidance and I just started making these decisions because I felt I was very mature. And in some ways I was pretty mature. But I mean, I was by no means an adult. I yeah. was by no means an adult until I was probably in my. I don't know, 23, 24. I don't know. Right. But I was free and I didn't care what the consequences were. And I didn't yep. care because like I became the hottest topic, like all around our circuit or whatever, you know, like yeah. all the yeah. malls that were in relation to mine. It's like, it's like I was the hottest topic. Everybody talked about me. 
And I just, I just came to a point where I was like, I, I don't fucking care. I've yeah. got this full time job. I'm making good money for, you know, somebody like me. And, um, none of those people matter. Like none of those people but, gossiping know, I, about you just mattered anymore. I still went to the kingdom hall regularly. And mm. sometimes I would show up for service and, and that just gradually faded away. You know, mm. I would go less and less. I would care less and less. Up until that point, you were kind of just like used to just being told what was okay and what wasn't okay. Oh, they, they had me under lock and key. I mean, even before they threatened to lock me in my room and stuff. And um, like they, my whereabouts were never, ever debated. Like they knew where I was, who I was with. You know, I was, they kept me locked up like a little treasure, you know. Right. And so now I do whatever I want. You know, huh. I didn't know I didn't have a driver's license, but I would take my brother's car and I would go, <laughs> you know, do stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, stuff, just, you know, nothing bad. Just, you know, go do errands, go see friends. Right. You know, normal people I, shit. Normal people shit. Uh, you know, the worst thing that my mom and my stepdad did to me for moving out. What's that? And this is probably the most evil. Uh huh. I didn't find out until I was 24 that I didn't have a diploma. Oh, it wow. had never come up. I had always worked for the same company. I'd moved up. I was at the highest level in that. You know what I mean? That I could yeah. get to in that company. Very young, very respected. I had no need to prove my education. And then something came up where I needed to show my diploma. So I, you know, called my mom and she's like, yeah, no, I don't have it. And I found out that retribution for me moving out they stopped paying my tuition to my high school. There were like one or two payments left. You never got your diploma. Well, I did actually get my diploma. Oh, okay. Uh, when I found out that I didn't have one, you know, my roommate at the time, she was like, well, let's just call it the school and see what's going on. And so I called up there and they're like, yep, you owe this amount. It was like 400 bucks. Or I don't know. It really right. wasn't that big of a deal, especially because I was a very successful businesswoman at that time. Yeah, and my roommates just like just pay it. So I paid it. And I got my diploma in the mail a few weeks later. Wow, and, nice. And even though we know that my education was, you know, just kind of like for show, um, I was actually yeah. very, very smart. Um, obviously, you know, with with English, you know, I was very good because that's one of the benefits you get as being raised as a Jehovah's Witness. But uh, you know, I was. I was reading and, and, and doing P and L's, you know, for my business. And I was very, very smart and very capable and very successful. I had my own house, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's just like the principle of the matter. Like that is your, one of your most basic jobs as a parent, you potty train your kids and teach them how to use indoor plumbing and you make sure they have their diploma. Right. And, and, and they just, they had, they didn't care about my future. Right, because your future all. was being someone's wife. Exactly, because they didn't care about my future if I was not going to do it their way. And like they, just the vindictive nature of how they treated me. You know, I know I'm over it. It really doesn't haunt me to this day, but this is the first time I've ever publicly told my story. 
And and saying these words out loud or just as a parent myself, yeah, I just can't comprehend it. I just cannot comprehend the motivation behind being, you know, being so selfish. They wanted me to do it their way so they looked good. And it was not about the fact that I was a human being with a life ahead of me and choices to make. And they didn't give me any tools to make those choices and live in the world. That's no. the reality for all of us. Yeah, it just it, it sure seems like from that it was more about them than you always. Absolutely, 100%. I was. You were there to increase their status. You were yeah. a status symbol. Like I a, was a pretty girl. Like a and fancy car. They, yep, they were going to sell me to the highest bidder or the person that had the most status. And like my wants and needs, you know, be damned. They, right. it, it's really, I was really treated like a prized cattle or sow. Yeah, like your your stepdad, if he were like a farmer and it was like a thousand years ago, he probably would have like sold you for a few farm animals. Yeah. Maybe yeah. many farm or, animals. You were pretty. You were pretty me, good looking. Sold back me to the then. family. You were, you, you still are. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, but he, no, he would have. He would have sold me, like in Game of Thrones, where they just made marriage packs. You know, to like. Oh right. Strengthen their house. You know, they would have found a another family that had an elder as the patriarch and a and a son that you know my stepdad would have approved of. Very and, political. Very political. It was very polit- very political. Thank you for saying it like that, because it really was. Yeah. For people who try to avoid politics, they sh- they, they're they certainly very skilled at making their own. Yeah. So I am um, at 20 years old. You know, I'm working for this fast food restaurant, which is ironically where my biological mother and father met in the 70s. And I carried on the family <laughs> tradition and worked for the same fast food restaurant. Well, and, you didn't meet you didn't meet your husband at McDo- at this restaurant, did you? Oh, contraire! I met my first <laughs> husband at this restaurant. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I um, while I'm working there, I think I was about twenty at that time. You know, really successful, living on my own, had my own apartment at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, had my own little shitty car, got me yeah. from work, and there was this boy that worked at that fast food restaurant with me and he was about my age and he was charming and very handsome in my estimation and he was going to college um to be a special ed teacher and I was so in love with that you know here's this guy who came here from Guatemala and he's doing a good thing with his career and I just got it in my head like I'm I'm gonna get this guy yeah, and of course it wasn't very hard for me because I, I was very pretty and um, looking back on it, quite a prize for my first husband. Sure. <laughs> and um, you know we we got together and we got pregnant. You know, not long after, mm-hmm. and you know I'm freaking out because you know I mean even though I'm not an active Jehovah's Witness, I still have this mindset that like you get married. You know yeah. what I mean. Just oh, like yeah. my mom, you're out of wedlock, you're married, you get married, make this right. And yep. so we got engaged, you know, and I'm getting pregnanter and pregnanter and then he starts drinking. Hmm. I'm not sure where, but I was five months pregnant. I had, I had been having dinner with my, my biological father 
you know, it was a nice little dinner. You know, my, my relationship with my biological father and my stepmother really increased, you know, it, it, it was so much better now that I was living on my own and, you know, I'd hang out with them all the time and, and it was a good influence for me as much as I would let it be. But I got home from a dinner with my, my biological father and I found my fiance laying on the floor, unresponsive. And like, I could, I could smell something on his breath and he was like, not coherent, but he would make noises and grunts and stuff. And what I didn't realize what I was smelling was tequila. And my older brother came over because I needed help. And it turns out, I mean, this guy, my brother found like this empty bottle of tequila, like a fifth of tequila or something. I mean, like that's that's too much for anybody. But like we we tried to get him up, you know, and I'm five months pregnant and I'm in no condition to be lifting a man. And he, he... soiled his britches while we were trying to get him up and so we had to just put him in the bathtub oh wow and hose him off and god bless my brother my brother has been there for me through so many terrible things like i i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my older brother i swear to god he's to this day my best friend my best confidant but um anyways so obviously he sobered up a few days later and, you know, and I called into work for him and made all sorts of excuses. I didn't know any better. Right. But his drinking wasn't like constant, but when he would do it, it would always be bad. And like, it didn't matter what substance it was. He told me he did cocaine before, you know, and I knew he did alcohol and, and he had this thing for caffeine, but it didn't matter what the substance was. He would abuse it. He had no sense of moderation when it came to that. You know, no internal, hey, put this down. It's getting a little too far. And I eventually had the baby. We got married when I was seven months pregnant. Mm. And then I had the baby. And once the baby was out of me, he he got really mean and possessive and controlling. After I had the baby, he made me cut my hair short. And oh, man. He didn't like the panties that I had. And he made me get granny panties. And it was, it was always just like very accusatory. Like I was like cheating on him or something, you know, and I'm a young mom, you know, trying to be a mother and work full time at this important job that I had. Right. And you know, sounds familiar. Yeah. It sounds a little familiar. I got to the point where he would start being physically abusive with me and you know, I just brushed it under the rug and stuff. And I was like, whatever. But there was this one time, my brother, you know, I mentioned that I I bought a house when I was 21 and my brother was living with me and my first husband and he was, my first husband was in, you know, he was under the influence of something and he was being belligerent and he walked out of the house and I'm like, I'm not putting up with this shit. And I locked the door. And so I'm upstairs taking care of my infant daughter and he finds a way into the house and he runs up there and he pushes me and I fall onto my baby and she starts crying. She was not seriously injured, you know, whatsoever, but she starts crying. And, and, and and that was my point. That was my red line. You can hurt me all you want. You mess with my baby. And, and I just, a switch flipped and I lost it. And my older brother who was living with us heard the commotion upstairs in our bedroom. And my, my husband had locked the door. And my brother heard me screaming, heard the baby crying. 
Um, and he grabbed, I think like a, this big heavy candlestick that we had as a decoration. And he ran upstairs, kicked the door in and beat the shit out of my ex-husband. <laughs> he, he had to get 17 staples in his head. Your ex-husband? You know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Not your brother. Not my brother, my ex-husband, because okay. my brother was like, he, he had always said, and he was kind of a piece of shit as a kid, super mean to me. And, but he always said, if anybody ever touches my sisters, I'll kill them. Yeah. And it was in that moment that he proved it. Now, obviously, he, my ex-husband didn't die. Yeah. But right after my brother was um, felt secure in the fact that he was, you know, he had neutralized the threat. And, you know, this guy's laying on the floor bleeding. He goes, I'm going to call the cops on myself. And they're probably going to arrest me. I just don't want you to be afraid. Hmm. And so he calls the cops. And a bunch bunch of cops show up. And, the, you know, the EMTs show up. And they're trying to talk to my ex-husband. And he's barely coherent and responsive again. Because, you know, he's got a big giant gash in his head. Yeah. And they took my brother and they put him in handcuffs. And they put him in the back of the cop car. And they got my story. And they got his story. They let my brother go. And they took my ex-husband to the hospital, followed up by taking him to jail. Wow. And he was prosecuted for domestic violence. Um, I, of course, was traumatized and terrified, and that was my husband. And so I went to court in his defense, you know, because, you know, that's what us victims do. <laughs> yeah. And um, anyways, so the, the marriage didn't last very long. I think mm -hmm. we got married when I was 20, and I think by the time I was 22 maybe almost 23, we were divorced uh, because I just, I hated him. I, I wanted nothing to do with him. He was an excellent father. I mean, for the most part, loved yeah. his daughter. His daughter loved him. And I never, ever wanted to take her away from him. You know, I mean, I would in a heartbeat if I, if I sensed any abuse, but there was never right. any abuse towards my daughter. I mean, maybe mentally, but not physically. Mm. And um, we got divorced and I was single for quite a while. I mean, like, no boyfriends for quite a while. It's just like, whatever, fuck it. You weren't actively a witness when this was happening. No, not remotely. So how do you go from... how? What happened between you moving out of your mom and stepdad's house? You said you were still trying to... You were still going to meetings and going out in service sometimes. So, so what happened between those two points? Like, how did you gradually just leave the witnesses behind? Well, it's like I said... Um, you know, I would I would go pretty faithfully at first, and then a little less, and then a little less, and I'd stop taking phone calls. And hmm. you know, I got to the point where I was pretty much just inactive, wasn't there, didn't talk to anybody. Yeah, I'm guessing nobody thought about me except for at my original congregation, where they're so fucking bored, all they could do is still talk about me years later. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just I like I. I started making friends at the fast food restaurant, the chain I was working at, because, you know, we were spread far and wide. There were lots mm -hmm. of people to associate with. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't say they were the best influences on me. <laughs> right. But, you know, like, like their company and fellowship was just so much more fun and comforting and, and natural that I naturally gravitated towards them. And I started to really get a taste for just like normal people who are just there to have a good time and right. be friends. And and your friendship isn't based on like how many hours you turned in on your service report that month. Or what I can do for them. In fact, most of my friends were gay. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so that was like a culture, kind of a culture shock for you, wasn't it? Like, I mean, not, not really. I mean, yeah. Well, in, in well your ways, brother. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my brother has his own story about coming out of the closet, but right. I was the only one that for sure knew he was gay ever since I was uh, a little kid. Oh. I mean, he, he, yeah. he was mean, but he and I were always very close. We were always treated like shit together. Oh, you know, yeah. my, my older sister was always treated with reverence and, hmm. and, you know, that was great. But he and I were just like little gremlins that, you know, like people tolerated, even though we, we weren't bad kids, but we were always kind of lumped into the same, yeah. you know, like role together. And um, anyway. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, your sister was always telling on herself and, you know doing the quote-unquote right thing and, and you guys were just less like you wanted to have your christmas present and uh you know you didn't like run to your mom and be like i got a christmas present you were just you were just you had it and you played with it you know you had to be yeah. i don't know i i can't really speculate but um you believed it was the truth though when you left your stepfather's home of course so like how how did you reconcile you know, you're making all these friends, your, you know, gay friends. And, you know, how do you reconcile that with, uh, you know, with what I assume you believe at that point to be true? Like, how does that, how does that jive in your mind? Well, when something is upsetting in my life, historically, I just don't think about it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what happened to me as a child, I started putting it out of my head. Yes, I still cared. Yes, right. I still have a bit of fear. Um, okay. You know, you, you know, I was like probably 30 years old before I stopped saying the name Jehovah when I got spooked by something. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I thought the demons might be like, I was literally like 30 years old. Oh, I've done like, that before. You know, yeah. I'm like, these things do, don't just go away from you. You don't just turn oh. off switch. I mean, when they're, when they're not. so deeply programmed and ingrained in you you know it, it is a process and and I, I might say it is probably a decade-long process on average because everybody is different sure but you don't you don't just walk away from these things and be like eh, i don't believe it unless it didn't mean something to you in the first place which good for you but that wasn't my case okay you know? so i just stopped thinking about it i started you know kind of putting it behind me and focusing on you know whatever point i was like hanging out with mm -hmm. my friends and, you know, experimenting a little bit with alcohol and, you know, just doing grown up things. And, and then that, I, I became more consumed with that. So it was easier to stop having these internal monologues where I'm like, you're, you're getting a special fireball during Armageddon. Jehovah's <laughs> going to send it right to you. <laughs> you know? You're like taking that part of yourself and just like locking it in a room and just leaving it in there and not, you know, compartmentalizing. I suppose that's a good analogy. You still believed, you still cared on on a certain level, but those, that part of you is like just not in the driver's seat anymore. The only way I got through tough things when I was a kid and at that point in time was to ignore it. That was that was mm -hmm. like the only defense mechanism that I had really developed. Ah, okay. and just like isolate myself, walk away from people. You know, I mean. Sure. Very, very, very unhealthy traits as an adult, but I know where they came from, and yeah. I didn't really have any guidance to get past that and, and deal with things in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. 
and so I just, you know, I let it go and I became more consumed with, you know, like I said, my friends and then I got pregnant and then I got married, you know, and yeah. it just, it, it became not important to me. And, and I remembered at a certain point being like, yeah, I'm not going back. Cause you know, there was always for a while, there was always that, yeah, I'll go back and I'll be like right. that sister in the kingdom all my mom talked about who was worldly. And then she came back and now she's a pioneer and Jehovah right. will forgive me. You know, I just, I just kind of stopped and I, I didn't care anymore. Hmm. And and it did take years, but I just didn't care anymore. Yeah. And then by the, by the time that I turned 25 and, um, you know, I was single, I'm sure I had been dating some guys, Yeah. you know, and I'm a single mom at this point and sitting around the bonfire. And I, I, I told my older brother and sister what had happened to me and and that was very cathartic to say out loud, but I didn't know how to feel about it. I felt so ashamed. Like it was my fault. Right. Like I'm so fucking dirty. Like, and it's ugh. not, it's not at all. No, obviously I, I know that, but these are still the feelings that victims get. Of course. Yes. You know what I mean? And it, it takes a while to get them to go away, you know, to get you to think like an actual ra- rational adult, like this mm-hmm. is not your fault. This is a bad thing that happened to you, but like, I remember after I said it out loud for the first time, it was, you know, it was cathartic. It felt good. I was mm-hmm. very nervous about it, but I, I started to do some exploring and something happened in fourth grade to me that is quite relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in fourth grade. My teacher is a very, very young, very handsome, straight out of college, good teacher, Kids loved him. I learned so much from him. He was a devout Roman Catholic, and I was a devout Jehovah's Witness. And and he thought that was kind of a cool dynamic. And so he and I were really close. And you know, we would talk about religion. And he was never in. He wasn't trying to indoctrinate me or preach at me. He was right. literally just looking at it from a teacher's standpoint and wanted to know more about my religion and wanted, you know, was curious about the psychology of what made me so devout at such a young age. Yeah. And 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 so he was like one of my favorite teachers ever. But during my fourth grade year, um, an order came down from, I think, the state of Michigan or something, and they mandated that all kids of a certain age be talked to by their teacher about sexual abuse. This is what it is. You know, this is wrong. You know, and he goes through his whole spiel and all of his kids are just like, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm like sitting there to myself being like, oh, and so at the end of his spiel, he told us to all put our heads down on our desk and raise your thumb if you think somebody is sexually abusing you. And so I did. <laughs> I put my head down. I raised my thumb. And then we were all excused to recess or lunch or something. And the teacher calls me and he's like, hey, I, I want you to know I saw your thumb. And we're going to talk about it. And so we did talk about it. And I, I told him, I described exactly what was going on. And he was like, oh, so he was a mandatory reporter to the state at that point in time, but he broke the law. And instead of telling the principal, you know, escalating it, right. he invited my stepdad and my mom in for a meeting with him. Oh, no. Like, what are they going to say? Like, come on. And, and so... You know, it's the middle of the school day for me and they show up at lunchtime and my stepdad goes walking in there with his cowboy boots and his cowboy hat on and my mom follows like a timid little mouse 
And of course I wasn't allowed to be there for the conversation. Right. And then they ended up leaving after the meeting. And, you know, I went back into my classroom and my teacher assured me everything was fine. And I was a little bit confused. Oh, come on. So. Wow. Like, dude. And then, and then actually when I went home, I was in so much trouble like yeah. so much trouble to the point where yeah I had to stay in my room but they wouldn't speak to me they wouldn't look at me <laughs> I, it, it was bad so yeah. I not to do that again fast forward to when I'm 25 and I have for the first time told people my brother and my sister what had happened to me um, so I'm looking into it a little bit more and I was brand new on Facebook at the time it had been around for a while but I was like alright yeah I'll get an account and I'm sure. searching people up and I decided to look up my fourth grade teacher. Mm-hmm. Not because I was like angry at him. I hadn't really processed all this like that you know, at that point in time. But, you know, I found him. I said, hey, mister, do you remember me? He was like, oh, my God. Yes. How are you? And I was like, I'm great. And, you know, we had we had we chit chatted for, you know, like a week or so. And he's like, hey, let's meet up for lunch. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, great. You know, I'm 25. I mean, he's probably in his 40s or something, early 40s. And mm-hmm. we meet up at this fancy, swanky little restaurant. We were eating out on the bar downtown or outside in the patio downtown. And we have great conversation catching up. And, and I said, hey, do you remember that time when I told you what my stepdad was doing to me? And like his face got still and then it dropped. And he's like almost like he knew what I was going to say. Yeah. And I said, it was all true. He was really doing that to me. And this guy dropped his head down to the table, put his hand over his face, and he was crying. He was like, oh, my yeah. God, no, 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 no. And yeah, that's, yeah. he felt really, really bad. And and I felt really bad that he felt bad. And I'm not looking back on it now. I'm like, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> we get through it, and he explains to me, the principal was such a bitch. Everybody hated oh, her. I didn't think she'd handle it appropriately. When ironically, she was probably the only one that would have handled it appropriately. Right. But he's like, I made the wrong decision. I'm so sorry. And he was legit, like, remorseful. And at least I, that's the way it came off to me. And then, you know, we finish up our lunch and we're leaving the restaurant and we're walking towards our cars. And he, like, reaches out and grabs my butt cheek. What? Yeah. Oh, no way. And I'm like, but here I am once again in a position where an older, successful, handsome man wants to give me attention. And I, 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 I've never been able at this point in my life, I've never been able to turn down attention from a man, at least not most of them, because like, that was the only thing I ever thought I was good for. And I never got over that at that point in my life. Right. And so I allowed his sexual advances and he started a sexual relationship with me. Oh my God. After I had just told him what had happened to me as a child and why he was responsible for not stopping. It seems um, like that's just that's just so bizarre that it would go from, you know, you telling him that and him crying to just immediately just turning around and like, going, hey, like I seriously? Call, I think that's what we call a sociopath, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe the crying was like an act or something like that's just how he felt he was supposed to react. It seemed really sincere, like honestly, the body language and. And I never thought he was a monster, 
Right. But at the time, it didn't dawn on me that yet here is another predator yeah. preying on somebody vulnerable who is just, you know what I'm saying? Like he turned yeah. that around real quick. And it didn't last. It was maybe a couple weeks, but that was all he was looking for because that's the kind of guy he was. Oh, geez. Being that devout Roman Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um. Anyway, so, yeah, that was that was pretty fucked up. I guess I don't really have many other words to describe it. The fucked up. Yeah, that's it's I agree. It's hard to describe it in any other phrasing. Honestly, <laughs> that's it's just shocking. You know, hearing other people's behavior, it's just like doing them doing things that you would just never, it would never come to your mind to behave that way. Oh, and I mean, people I, just behave that way. It's like, wow. I just don't understand how some people will look at a person and they're not a human to them. They're just yeah. like a means to a sexual end. Like, it's like you just want to be that drill sergeant in full metal jacket where you're just like, what is your major malfunction? <laughs> Something like that. I think I might take it a step further, but yeah. <laughs> well, of course. I think you're entitled yeah. to do that. So let me let me give you some positive. Okay. Yeah. So when I was 26, still a single mom, you know, I'm fucking around and stuff, but you know, I yeah. got an awesome job. Got my own house, taking care of my daughter, who's getting a little older now. She was like five. Okay. And um, still on Facebook. And I decided to look up people from my hometown where I was moved to when I was six years old. Okay. Now, what I didn't include in this story was when I was moved to the small town uh, and put in a first grade class, there was this boy. And he had blonde blonde hair it was very silver blonde and these big blue eyes and like i fell in love with him i mean for as much as you can as a first grader right of course of course <laughs> but like he i was very loyal and like i always had a crush on him maybe he was one of the cool kids and he mm -hmm. looked rich to me he didn't look like he wore hand-me-downs like i did right. you know but like i like i carried a torch for this kid like through sixth grade Mm -hmm. Like I would, I would write poems about him. I'd write oh. about him in my diary. I wrote songs about him when I started learning how to play the guitar. Oh my God. Really? I was so, I was so in love with this kid. Now uh. by seventh grade, you know, I was like, yeah, we're friendly. Sometimes we say hi on the bus and stuff, but yeah. he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't care. So I kind of like moved on and got some other crushes, you know, whatever. Right. But then. Uh, when I was 16, I started working at the fast food chain that was local in our little town where I would make my career for a short time or for actually a long time. But um, I had forgotten about him, honestly. Like, yeah, sure, I knew who his name and stuff, but it wasn't important to me. I didn't think about it anymore. And so, you know, I'm working the fast food joint and, and a lot of times I was in the drive through window. And keep in mind, I'm a pretty good looking chick, you know, mm -hmm. especially the older I get, the more womanly I get. And um, apparently he would go through the drive-thru all the time. <laughs> but I didn't realize it. I didn't know. It. You know, people mature and their faces look different. And I don't look at the customers that are going through the drive-thru. I just want them to get the fuck out of there. Here's your right. food, go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. We're so on a schedule here. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm 26, right? And I'm, I'm fucking around on Facebook. And I'm looking up people from, you know, my, my old hometown. And yep. 
this kid, this blonde haired, blue eyed kid was like the first person to pop up in the search when I typed in the high school name. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, how cool is that? You know, because I was just like, oh, my, this is this is hilarious, you know. Yeah. And so I, I sent him a, a message and I said, hey, do you remember me? And he was like, oh, yeah, I had the biggest crush on you. And I was like, shut up. I had the biggest crush on you. <laughs> and so, you know, we uh, we got a kick out of that. We, chit- we chit-chatted for a little while. And and then we um, established a time to, to hang out. And we decided that, you know, uh, it was a mutual friend of ours. Turned, in, turned out to be his best friend, you know, his lifelong best friend. But this kid that he was best friends with was like a dork like me when I was still in public schools and he and I were good friends, never, never had a romantic relationship. We were just good friends. And so, you know, um, this kid I had a crush on set, you know, set up, let's go hang out at my friend's house. You know him, he's got a hot tub. We'll just all hang out as friends. And I was like, yeah, cool. Great. Mm -hmm. So I go over and hang out and we get in the hot tub and, you know, and this guy six foot one and just, you know, like, broad manly you could tell he had that core man strength you know because he grew up in like <laughs> rural 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 little part of town where where we were from and and like he was just like this adonis of a man to me still have these giant blue eyes hair still blondish you know a little darker yeah and and we had a lot of fun hanging out that night and so the next time we hung out like maybe a week later we decided we were going to go out to dinner and I, I kind of knew I liked him. So, you know, I got my boobs all pushed up and got my makeup pretty. And we went out to dinner. We went to the very fancy, cool place and we had a blast. And then from there, cause it was all downtown. And then from there we walked to like a piano bar and, you know, we weren't like, we hadn't initiated any physical contact at that point, but when we were at the piano bar, you know, we're slamming drinks down, getting drunk as you know what. And and like this guy was looking at me and I was a little uncomfortable with it. So I was like, Hey, can I sit on your lap? You know, he said, <laughs> and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever makes you feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, would it make you feel safer if I kissed you? And so we started kissing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And that first date lasted for two days. It was, you know, a Saturday and oh man, he, um, he lived on a lake and had a boat and I went to his house and we nice. had, a blast and you know it was getting to be like dusk Sunday and I had to go because I had to work in the morning obviously and and I mean from that moment on I mean he and I were it was just meant to be it was just so crazy how mm-hmm. long it took us to get together and a year after that we were married and 13 years later we're still married and he is he is everything to me I I won the lottery and I don't know how he comes from this amazing family they're not religious whatsoever but they are some of the most kind generous empathetic loving people I have ever met in my life just good people with no motivation behind their being good and it was just not something I was used to seeing no of course not you know, I mean there were always motivations you know where I came from and, right and like just his family loved me and they were more like god this guy's 26 are we ever going to get him married off you know so So, but anyways um no throughout the years he has been my savior now he has 
no connection to the Jehovah's Witnesses whatsoever. And so what he knows about them is what he's heard from me, you know, like the trauma that I've been through, you know, and he didn't know how to deal with it, but he's always just been so patient and learned about it, read about it. He'd reach out to family members of mine and you know, say, how do I deal with this? And he has been the backbone of my life. He taught me how to be an adult, taught me how to be a, a relatively normal person, at least on the exterior. And there is not a day that I, that goes by that I don't wish I believed in God so that I could pray and thank him for my husband. You finally get to a point where everything's fine or almost everything's fine. Yeah. And um, I got the most handsome man that I'd ever been with and I married him. <laughs> You know, so nice. I won't say it's all worth it, but, you know, I mean, sometimes the broken road is very, very unexpected and where it leads you ends up being a more positive place than where you came from. Yeah. And, and I'm definitely not okay, as they say, and I'm not really sure what okay means, but I, I know that I deal with a lot of terrible feelings and I have some, you know, just terrible inner demons that I've never quite been able to conquer. Um, you know, with that said, I'm, I'm a fully functional adult, you know, with, with, with loving relationships mm -hmm. and good life. And you raised a child through all this as not a witness. I raised a hell of a child. My instincts as a mother were surprisingly very spot on. Um, I, I gave up religion. I just, I knew I didn't believe or could never have faith after what I'd went through. I just... I wish I could. I really do. I wish I had the comfort of religion, but I just don't believe it, you know, and, yeah. and it would be a fakery for me. So I just, I raised my daughter to ask me anything. Mm -hmm. And I always would give her age appropriate, but honest answers. She could ask me about anything. She could ask me about religion or boys or, you know, when she got older, she could ask me about sex. And I would always tell her the truth the honest to God truth. And I didn't care how it made me look because yeah. like my point as a mother was to make her better than I was. Yeah. And so like if I sacrifice some of my dignity to tell her the truthful answer and it helps her to be a better, more balanced person, then that is so worth it. That is yeah. the least I can do. And that's not something your mom did. Uh, that is the polar opposite of what my mom did. I remember after uh, my first year of homeschool, eighth grade I was finishing up eighth grade my my older sister was actually she graduated from high school you know before the big graduation party that we talked about yeah and I remember going to the graduation ceremony because she was allowed to continue in public school mm -hmm. um, they obviously didn't care about her virginity as much as mine <laughs> um, right. but like I remember going to the, the the commencement ceremony and and she she was beautiful in her cap and gown and she got awards and she got to walk with this really handsome boy and it was just like, wow, I want to do that too. And yeah. so that night I went to my mom and she was laying, sitting up in bed reading something. And I was like, mom, uh, next year I, I want to go back to public schools. Mm -hmm. And she put down her reading material and she goes, you don't give a flying fuck about me. And that was the first time I'd ever heard my mother use the F word. Wow. And I was like, taking it back like, whoa. So apparently going to public schools was bad for my mom or, you know, me going to public How? schools, my mom. And, and I think I tried to argue a little bit about it. And she's like, no, no, we're not doing it. You go oh move to God. your dad's. 
And of course, moving to my dad's would mean like losing my social structure. Right. So you weren't going to do that. No. And she knew that. So she, she wanted to keep me in homeschool. Like, what is that? I, I just don't get like, what does it matter to her? I mean, you would think it would almost be like easier because then you, she could just like send you away. But of course, yeah, they, they probably didn't want to, they seem to be really uh, focused on keeping you in their sights at all times. And correct. Yeah. But it's like, what do you, what do they get out of that? Other than what I, I can only imagine, like just the prestige of being a homeschooling mom or something like that. And she didn't do shit. I had right. my workbooks and my teacher's books and like, yeah, no, it was, it but nobody else knew that. But, well, right. Yeah. Like the people that were giving her whatever recognition, you know, it's, it's not like, I don't think it was like people would be like, Oh, she homeschools her kid. That's the only thing, you know, but it was like, there's like a whole package of things. It's like she's an elder's wife and she homeschools her kids and she yeah, auxiliary yeah. pioneers and yep. this and that and this, you know, so it's like you wanted to take, a little bit of that wind from her sails and it was just like no and the, the, but that was not my i didn't realize that's how she would feel about it i was just like hey this is this is i want to do this too yeah well it's shocking it upset her so much and i just never brought it up again and i accepted that i'd be homeschooled now the funny thing about my education was that um obviously i had no guidance no help and yeah. at one point, my mom realized, oh, shit, she's trying to teach herself algebra. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, you know, algebra is like a different language when you're, you know, you only know your multiplications and your additions and divisions right. and stuff. Why are there letters in my math problem? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I'm trying to teach myself with it. And I think she noticed that I was relying on the teacher's books way too much. So she eventually set it up so that my disfellowship older sister, who was disfellowshipped at the time, hmm. uh, she would meet me she, my mom would drive me into the big city where my sister lived and we would meet at a fast food restaurant and my sister was supposed to tutor me in algebra because you know she's a very smart girl she you know she went to public schools and had good teachers and, right and and she understood it perfectly yeah but she was not the greatest teacher and i remember we only did this for a few weeks because it would always end in my sister being like are you stupid oh god because <laughs> i just couldn't understand you know what i mean she she, it wasn't her profession to teach. She didn't know how to teach math. Right. And, and and so, like, after that didn't work out, my mom was just like, yeah, all right, well, just here's the, here's the teacher's book. <laughs> Which is really actually sad. I know I laughed, but. I don't know, like, what it, it, it seems like that's kind of a gray area for the witnesses, like, how to, how to deal with disfellowship relatives. But from what it sounds like, your mom was a very big stickler for the rules and, like. I know recently there was like, I, I saw something online about them having like a convention video that they showed about, you know, showing an example of how parents treat their disfellowship children. And there was like a part of, a, a part of that video where like they weren't even answering her phone calls. Like they'd see her name pop up on the phone and then just like, we're so spiritual. We don't answer, even answer the phone of our disfellowship daughter. Like. What if she has an emergency? What if she's trying to tell you somebody's dying or something like that? Like, come on. But anyway, it's like, yeah, like your mom, your mom seemed like a very big stickler for the rules. We were such a staunch, militant Jehovah's Witness family. We followed every single one of the rules, you know, as far as what mm -hmm. we were supposed to do. We right. went to every meeting. We went out in service every Saturday and Sunday. 
I mean, and we even faithfully had our family study. It was not up for debate. We would have our family study. And normally my elder stepfather would conduct it. But there was this one time when my stepfather was involved in a a project that, you know, he was getting paid $3,000 to do and Mm -hmm. he was up against a deadline and he had to work on it in his workshop. And so my mother was tasked with leading the family study. Now, as you know, women can't pray or do anything religious in a leadership role without a head covering in order to show respect to the man who is, you know, the head of the household or your superior or however you want to say it. Right. And it was the middle of winter in Michigan, which can be pretty intense. And the only thing she could find to cover her head with, even though my stepfather was out in the garage, nowhere near her, the only thing she could find her head or, or to cover her head with was this purple, very colorful winter hat with a big old pom-pom on top. And she puts it on and it looks ridiculous on her. I mean, it's who doesn't look ridiculous in a big winter hat with a pom-pom on it? Right. And she's trying to be all serious and conduct the study. And all of us kids, at least us three older ones who knew what was going on, were just giggling. We're like snickering and, and she's mad at us. You pay attention you know, threats of violence and stuff. And, and we just, we couldn't stop our giggling because she looked so stupid. And so she went out into the garage and she said my stepfather's name. She said, the kids won't take me seriously. And he looked at her with this stupid winter hat on. And he started laughing at her. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she had to take the L on that one. <laughs> God. She was a stickler, but like she'll even she'll talk to her worldly kids. Now keep in mind I haven't spoken to her in over a decade and I have mm-hmm. no inclination to speak with her. If she passes away, I'll acknowledge it and I will be sad because that is my mother. Mm-hmm. But I will not go to her service. I I that is how far detached I am. Mm-hmm. Um so but she will speak to her kids. She'll occasionally speak to my gay brother and you know his story because he told it yep. um and she and my oldest sister have some kind of a relationship but it's a very it's a very light relationship you know like mm-hmm. sometimes my older sister will send her kid or at least used to when they were still kids you know to go see my my mom what about you with your daughter was there an attempt to have a relationship there occasionally um you know when when my daughter was very young um, we would go and take a trip across the country to go see them in Arizona where they had moved. And you now I brought my daughter who was less than two years old at the time. And it was okay. You know, we visited. I had my first husband with me. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then after that, like, you know, it wasn't long after that to where I came out with what I came out with. And I, told myself I'm like my daughter will never ever ever be in the same room as my stepfather Mm. ever so there were a couple of occasions in my daughter's entire life where my mother would be visiting the state and she would reach out and want to see my daughter and and I made it clear it was okay if it was just you mom yeah and so my, you know, my mom, you know, like a couple times took her out to a fast food restaurant and 
you know, and bought her some stuff from the dollar store. But, like, no. <laughs> uh, she yeah. reached out a couple times, but I just wouldn't allow it. I wouldn't allow it. And you know what? The older I get, the more I'm looking back on it as a historical thing. I think that was the right thing. Because mm-hmm. I know the amount of indoctrination I went through. And even if there was no sexual abuse for my daughter, she doesn't need to have that mental abuse too. Saying that this is the only right thing. You can't ask questions. Do you have any advice for somebody that is uh, questioning things and thinking of leaving? Absolutely. Um, my advice would be take it slow. Think out these thoughts. Keep them private. Keep them to yourself. But really go to a quiet place and think them through. How do you really feel? Nobody is listening. It's just you in your head. And and you can just really ask yourself, well, why do I feel this way? Do I do I question this? Is it okay to question this? You know, just really really get in touch with your feelings about why you're thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. And be honest with yourself. You really have to remove the whole perception because that is all Jehovah's Witnesses are about is the perception of things. Really ask yourself, is this the healthiest thing for me to do right now? Do I have healthy tendencies? Am I in the right spot? You know, and just take your time. And if you feel the need to exit after you, you know, really figure out where you stand as a person just between you, your, you and yourself, then... Do it in whatever way you see appropriate. Everybody's got different circumstances, but do it. Don't hang on to something that you know is not right for you or not right in general. And and be brave. Be brave because I promise you it gets better. The world is full of terrible, awful people and things, but the world is also full of wonderful, generous, kind, understanding people that only want to help and be good. And you've got to find those people and you've got to break away from just this one thing you've ever known or this one thing that keeps you holding on. You know, yeah. just be brave is what I would say. Don't be don't be rash or hasty. Just be brave and do it in the best way you know how if, if you feel like that's the best thing for you is to leave. 